This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In Reese Bowen's latest historical novel, Where the Sky Begins, London during World War II is seen through the eyes of Josie, God, I love that name, Banks, a plain-spoken East Ender in a bad marriage with no job and one talent, making a decent cuppa. Evacuated to the English countryside, Josie ends up on the estate of the aristocratic Miss Harcourt, a reluctant hostess to survivors of the Blitz. Awed as she is by the magnificent landscape, Josie sees opportunity and convinces Miss Harcourt to let her open a tea shop on the estate, seeing it as a chance for everyone to begin again. When Josie meets Mike Johnson, a handsome Canadian pilot stationed at the neighboring bomber base, a growing intimacy brings her an inner peace she never felt before. Then her husband Stan returns from the war. Now a threat looms larger than anyone imagined, and a dangerous secret is about to upend Josie's life again. Her newfound courage will be put to the test if she is to emerge, like a survivor, triumphant. Reese and I discuss how and when the story came to her, the research that took her into one of England's most devastating wars, and why she loves to pivot in and out of writing mysteries. All great stuff from this prolific writer. Reese, the first thing I'm going to comment is the fact that your wonderful protagonist has the name Josie. I know, I know. I saw that when I was about to log in for this. I thought, oh, well, you have something in common. That's great. <laughs> now, sadly, you chose Banks as her second, as her last name instead of Brown. What were you thinking, please? Close, close yeah. <laughs> of course, Bowen is also close. So, yeah, I, you yeah. know, maybe we're connected somehow. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we are. And it's not a usual name either. I mean, it's it's a very unusual name, I think, isn't it, really? And I'm honored that you chose it. <laughs> <laughs> Josie isn't posh in any sense of the word. She's more of a commoner living an East End life. I love how you got Cockney phrases sprinkled throughout, like plate of meat, feet. <laughs> she married young and quickly to Stan, a man who's handsome and charming. But she's relieved when he's called up to war because she assumes that their marriage isn't going to last anyway. I can see the young married Josie going in thinking he chose me and then figuring out, no, he didn't. Let's talk a little bit about young marriage before wartime and also in the 1940s. Yeah, well, I think with Josie especially, I think the one thing that Stan offered her was an escape. She was living at home in a house crowded with her siblings, also with a stepmother who didn't want her there, apart from the fact that she liked the money that Josie brought in working in the factory. So I think Josie was flattered because he was a snappy dresser and he was confident and he was cocky. And the fact that he chose her to dance with, I think really flattered her. And she saw it as an escape. And of course, once they were married, what she saw as his confidence and charm to start with turned into a bullying streak. And especially they both wanted children and children didn't come along and he completely blamed her. So he was turning into a rather sadistic bully, I think. So it was a huge relief when he was called up into the army. I don't know if you said the marriage wouldn't have lasted in those days, especially among the lower class people. Divorce was really difficult to get and frowned on. So whether she would have put up with it and endured, the big thing she hated more than anything, I think, as part from his bullying, was the fact he didn't want her to have a job. He wanted to show that he could support the family. And her job was to make the house nice for him. And as we can see during the book, she has so much more to give to the world. She is very friendly. She's very open. She's very enterprising. And she's quite smart. 
I loved every facet about her, uh, her ingenuity, how she saw opportunity when none was there. As it happens with many of Londoners at that time, she's bombed out first at the tea shop where she works, and she worked so hard in getting a job there. Yeah, yeah. And, and then her clothes are literally blown off of her in a bombing. Yeah. I thought you brought that very much to life. I can see that you did a lot of research on the London Blitz. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they were so true for everybody. And but what I started thinking about was literally she's been reborn. She's been raised from the rubble with nothing. And then I thought, well, what would you do? Um, it was fine. If you had a loving family to go to, that was fine. They'd say, oh, we can squeeze you in. Don't worry. But what if you had nobody and there were so many other people who were being bombed just the same as you. Where would you go? What would you do? And I mean, literally having nothing, don't, not having, you know, a teacup, um, pair of underpants, you don't have anything at all. It's literally starting over. And it could have been so daunting for some people, they just gave up. And Josie doesn't. Right, right. Um, she is evacuated. She's hurt. She has a concussion and some injury to her, her arm or shoulder. She's evacuated to the North Country, a place called Sutton St. Giles. Considering the research that you did on the whole country at this time, why did you place her there in particular? Well, one of the reasons was I wanted her right next to one of the big RAF bomber stations. Um, and they were nearly all on the East Coast because A, it's incredibly flat and B, it's direct line to Germany. So, you know, they take off from the coast, they go straight to Germany. So I wanted her next to that because what I wanted to show, she arrives in this place and Lincolnshire is not only is it flat, it's like Holland, it's below sea level because they drained all this area to make fields years ago. So you've got flat fields and between them, you have like dikes with water and raised banks and things, but you can look out and this, I mean, that's why I called this where the sky begins because she's grown up in these narrow streets of London with the houses like this and then the sky above nearly always has some sort of smog in it because everybody has a coal fire and for the first time she looks out and she sees this enormous sky and it's it's overwhelming it might be the way an insect would be if you turned over the earth and suddenly that insect is looking at the world she's just completely overwhelmed by this sky so I thought this is a great place to put her it's an area I know very well my best friend from college still lives in this area and every time I go to England I stay with her so they've driven me around some of the RAF museums at the former World War II stations and and I've seen the bomber planes. I've climbed inside a Lancaster. I've seen what helmets they wore. I know a lot about this. So it was a good place to put it because it was real. And also I wanted to show that in the war, nowhere is safe. She's shipped out to the countryside where you think, oh, that might be lovely. She's in a lovely country house. And then the first evening she hears this roar and all these planes take off going for Germany. And she realizes the war is here with me. Right. She ends up with the aristocratic Miss Harcourt who it's very obvious that she sees war as an inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I think this is the first time we see Josie's real spunk coming out. Well, she, we saw it when she tries to get a job in the tea shop, which shows that she's not going to be walked over. But even after what she's gone through with the injuries and the bombing and everything, Miss Harcourt says, well, when you recover, we'd have to decide what your duties will be. 
And Josie says to her, I don't mind helping out, but I ain't no servant. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, I'm not going to be a servant, you know. So um, it, it's interesting that we see then that she's her spunk has come back and she's not going to be walked over. I loved that. I also love that she ends up doing things that makes their life easier, Miss Harcourt and her yeah. uh, her cook. Yeah. Including starting a garden, um, you know, raising chickens and yeah. Yeah. the little tea shop that she starts, which becomes sort of a congregation area for the whole community. Yeah, yeah. That job she had at the tea shop in London was the first time in her life I think she was really happy because she grew up with this appreciation for beauty, which she didn't really know where it came from because she grew up in this horrible household with all the kids crammed in and everything. But to be in that tea shop where there was elegance. They had nice china. There were little flowers on the tables, you know, and she loved that. So I think she, you know, the chance to recreate that is something that she really wanted. And of course, it comes about because she sees a young airman one day leaning against their wall and his bike has a flat tire and it's pouring with rain. So she invites him in for a cup of tea and he sits in their kitchen and he looks around and he says, this is just like home. Aww. And she realizes that what these, I mean, these are 18, some of these boys, you know, they're 18 and they're flying a plane into Germany every night and half of them won't come back. And she knows that what they want, they don't want the pub to get drunk. They want that tiny slice of home to remind them. And so she starts this tea shop and of course it becomes a big success. And in fact, the working title I had for this book, which I really liked, but they turned down was the tea shop at the edge of eternity. Wow. I love that. I liked it too. They turned it down for two reasons. One, they said it's too many words. You know, if, if something's on Amazon and it's only a thumbnail, you can't read it. And the other thing they said was that men would not be attracted by the word tea shop. So you never know. I mean, I, I liked it. I thought it summed up very much what it was. But um, the tea shop is definitely like a motif going through the book. It's that little slice of normality and home in the middle of war. Josie, when she's there, Josie meets a pilot from Canada named Mike, yeah. who treats her with tremendous respect. Yes. And they have a kiss. They share a kiss at the movies, and she realizes what she's missing in her own relationship. Explain your process for weaving the reality of life into their relationships in the middle of a war. Well, I think that the attitude was entirely in the war. We've only got today. Because in England, as it was in like the rest of Europe, you never knew when that bomb was going to fall on your house. Um, you never knew when your loved one was not going to come home and you'd get that telegram. You know, nobody escaped from the war. I mean, you could be, I suppose, up in the wilds of Scotland or somewhere where you'd think you were fairly safe. But even then, you'd have family members who wouldn't come back. So there was this great feeling of we have to make the most of today. And of course, you'll see with this story, what I wanted to show with Josie her resilience is that every time she makes a little step forward, there are two steps back where she's pushed. You know, she she thinks she's come to this lovely place in the country where she's safe. And then there's, there's the airfield with the bombers next door. And then she meets Mike, the pilot, and she thinks, you know, he's everything I dreamed of in a man. And of course, we see in the book the respect he treats her with because he's Canadian is very different from the way the upper class pilots uh, who come to the tea shop treat her. They treat her, I mean, they definitely talk down to her and they sort of make jokes at her expense. And, you know, that would be a normal way that an upper class young man would treat someone who was lower class. It was this huge class system in England at that time still. 
um, that, you know, someone who was upper class would look down on someone who was lower class. And so the fact that he treats her as an equal with great respect, I think that really touches her. And then, of course, she finds out that there are secrets that she can't believe. First of all, she has a husband. She doesn't know if he's alive or not, and he might turn up at any moment. And then she realized she doesn't know everything about Mike either. So it's just like, you know, she can never feel safe and secure saying this is my future because nobody could at that time. Right, exactly. World War II fiction has been fertile ground for a couple of years now. But your love of writing historical fiction is not just grounded on your standalones, but also you have historical mystery roots. Mm -hmm. I personally discovered you with Royal Spinus, (laughs) which, you know, it's one of my favorites. I love them. But you also have the Molly Murphy series and the Evan Evans series. How hard or easy is it for you to shift from mystery to straight historicals? It's strange because, you know, obviously I'd been writing straight mystery for a long time. You know, I'd done the Constable Evans series and then I've got 18 books now in the Molly Murphy series. Um, the 16th in the Royal Spinus is coming out in November. So I'm used to writing mysteries. So I'm writing. The first standalones did have that large element of mystery in them. You know, In Farley Field was, in fact, a thriller in which we know that there's a traitor among the British aristocrats and our main characters are trying to find out the truth. Um, And then I suppose the next one was the Tuscan child in which we have a big secret, a big enigma going through it. What happened in World War II that I don't know about? And someone in a later time going back to try and find out what happened to her father. But then when I did, I think the first one of those was the Victory Garden I did that had no mystery in it at all. It was like, okay, well, where's the body? You know, when are we going to come up with the body in this? We've got to, it's very strange to create a character who doesn't have to find out something. And so I think there's always this little element of mystery that slips in somewhere. You know, I did the one about Queen Victoria where someone is is killed and she's the main suspect. So she has to prove her innocence. And then of course, the, the Venice sketchbook had this whole element of a person in the present finding out what was her, her aunt's secret life. And now with this one, I can't completely run away from my mystery roots. You know, there is the element of there is a traitor here. Who is it? And Joseph's job is to find it out. So, you know, I think you're going to get a little bit of mystery from me, whatever I write. I think it's just it's in the DNA right now. I would also imagine that every book needs conflict, whether it's mystery or not. And what you've done is you've honed in on what makes the life that they're living in that time, in that place, in that circumstance. What created the conflict that molded them as characters? And you've certainly done a beautiful job in molding Josie into someone who we'd all love as a friend, would love her back then, would love her now. You've kind of reached into her soul and said, this is who I was trying to create. And I don't know if you know Josie's or grew up with a Josie or had a Josie in your family background somewhere, but it is wonderful that you've exposed us to her as well. Well, thank you. And it's interesting while you were saying that, you know, all of my heroines until now have been or heroes and heroines have been educated people, usually quite upper class people who know who they are, know their place in life and have the tools to do the things that they're asked to do in times of stress. They have the tools to go and work at Bletchley Park or they have the tools to go and find out what happened to her great aunt, you know, to go off to Venice without thinking twice about it. Whereas Josie, 
She's only been out of London a couple of times in her entire life. She has no expectations. It was a challenge and a very pleasant one to try this because I didn't know anybody like her. Well, I suppose the closest I would come would be my great aunt, who was sent to be a maid into service at a very young age because she was very smart and she wanted to train to be a teacher. Her teachers at her school thought that she had what it took to train to be a teacher. And then her father became very ill and wasn't working. And she was the oldest one still left at home in the family. And they said, you need to go out and get a job right now. And so she was, I think, 13 or 14, and she was sent to be a maid in this big house. So all of her hopes were dashed and she never let it destroy her. She did go on afterwards, much later, to be a teacher. And she read widely. She read the whole of Shakespeare. She could quote large chunks of Shakespeare. She educated herself to be a very educated woman. And so I suppose Josie has that sort of sense about her. What I liked with this great aunt was when she was sent into service, they had the daughter of the family was about the same age. And she said to my great aunt, I should call you Spinks, which was her last name. And my great aunt said, in that case, I should call you Wadsworth, which was her <laughs> last name. And she looked at this and she said, but they do it in all the biggest houses. And my aunt said, then we'll wait till I get to one of the biggest houses and walked away. So, you know, you had a young girl to say that. I loved it. So perhaps that's where she came from. I hadn't thought of it. That's interesting you touched on that because I had never made that connection before. But it must be the fact that nobody was going to walk over her. And I love that. Well, you've brought her to life in your book. So she's sort of your um, muse in this regard. Yeah. It's nice oh, to have a, a muse. That makes me very happy to know that. That's, that's lovely because I was very fond of that great aunt. She was the one who raised me pretty much because she, by the time I was born, she was almost blind. So she wasn't working or anything. So she was the one who was assigned to look after me. And she told me endless stories and we played endless games of, you know, pretend and we'd be the wicked witch and the good fairy and all those sort of things. So I'm sure she was the one who turned me into a writer. Oh, that's heavy. That's really kind of, that's the sweetest thing you could have said and the greatest homage you could give her. Yeah, yes. And what was her name? Well, her real name was Sarah Ann. But, you know, in England, we have all these funny nicknames for people. She was always called Min in the family, Great Aunt Min. I love it. Yeah. You know, there's so many stories one can write about World War II. You can go on writing them forever because everybody's experience is slightly different. But I wanted to show what it was like for an ordinary person in England in World War II. You know, in America, I'm sure there were hardships and I'm sure that people worried about their loved ones and got letters and things. But the reality in England was that one could be bombed any single day and that life could end any single day. And people just got on with it. You know, they picked up what they could from the rubble and they went on and it showed this incredible strength of character, I think. And there was this very much the stiff British stiff upper lip. Interestingly, after the war, they did a survey and the British who had shown this incredible resilience had quite a few mental health problems, PTSD, after the war, whereas they compared it to the island of Malta, where they were heav equally heavily bombed during the war. And the Maltese, being a Mediterranean race, you know, cried and screamed and hugged each other. And after the war, they were perfectly mentally fine because they got out all their stresses right then. So it's interesting to see, you know, what happened with the English stiff upper lip and we're going to make the best keep calm and carry on of course that came from world war ii it's funny too you're right the processing of the pain of the trauma of the memories that you have 
I know that I'm sure that you had people that you've met in England and people that you know or family members that it stayed with them and it showed itself in different ways. So trauma is a very real thing that we all need to address, but particularly during wartime. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I was growing up in those years right after the war. So my my father came back. He was in North Africa during the war. I had uncles who were on Atlantic convoys on a big ship. And um, the interesting thing was that for the soldiers and the service people, they didn't seem to have the PTSD, you would think, because I think they all felt they were doing their part to stop Hitler. And my father, in many ways, had a great time in all. I mean, he was he fought at the Battle of El Alamein and things, so he was in the thick of it. But it was a band of men who were camped in the desert and on, you know, they had cricket matches and they tried Arabic food and things. And uh, so I think in many ways it was a good time for him. He certainly went to all the reunions after the war when his regiment used to get together. So I don't think he had that. But um, I definitely was conscious of the whole effect of the war when I was a child. First of all, rationing did not stop until 1953. So that's eight years after the war ended. You still had, you know, this much meat per week. And um, I do remember the days that candy, sweets came off ration because there was this huge rush at all of the sweet shops and they sold out in about 20 minutes. And the other thing too is when you went up to London, you could not walk past any street without seeing a bomb site. Those were not cleared away really till the end of the 60s, I think. So you were very conscious of the fact that this is a place that's recovering from war. Wow. That alone says it all. I mean, Mm -hmm. to live with the rubble Mm -hmm. of neighborhoods you knew and, you know, how you see them in your mind's eye. But now when you go through the same neighborhoods, they're nothing at all like they were. No, No, especially if you go around the area around St. Paul's, which is on the book cover of my book. I don't know if I've shown the cover of the book. You see, St. Paul's is in the background there, and the whole area around it was completely flattened. And now this is all um, skyscrapers, huge buildings everywhere. So it's all gone now. And I think another reason for writing about World War II is it's just about to go from memories. The generation who went through the whole thing is gone. And people like me who were just touched by the whole thing are getting older now. And the feeling that if you don't write about it, it will just disappear. I think that's an underlying feeling for me that I should write about it. I should make sure everybody knows and remembers what happened. Grease Bowen's latest historical, Where the Sky Begins, is in bookstores now. You can also order through Amazon. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.